Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hello, Daryl. We have a new voice. Hey there, everyone. I'm Daryl. I am on the board of directors for the Anoka County Historical Society. That's one of my side gigs. Um, Another one is that I am the co-host of a podcast with my partner, Philip, where we review geeky TV series. It's Two Rivers, Two Takes. So right now we are actually reviewing the newest Star Wars series, The Book of Boba Fett. Um, And the concept of books sort of ties in very well with what we'll be discussing today. It's written by someone who's pretty prominent in Anoka County history. And... Um, her name is Dr. Flora Aldrich. She was a practicing physician in Anoka County, right there in our county seat of Anoka, and had a wonderful mansion, which actually housed the Anoka County Historical Society. Sarah, could you describe sort of what she did? Why was she important? Yeah, for a little context, she was born in 1859 in New York and moved to Anoka with her husband in about 1883, graduated from Minnesota Medical College in 1887. In the early 1900s, only about 5% of all doctors in the United States were women. So amazing human just becoming a doctor. And she had a practice and she saw mostly women and children here in Anoka. We talk about her being a doctor so much and this connection to the city of Anoka. But the one thing that people don't realize is that she published a novel. Yeah, and her publication history, it's very sparse. So um, she wrote one really sort of groundbreaking book before her novel. So before she dipped her toe into fiction, um, she wrote the, oh, what is it called, Sarah? Help me out oh, with this. She wrote a total of three books in her life. So the first two are like medical advice. The first one in 1901 called The Boudoir Companion. Don't get excited. <laughs> it's about uh, how to deal with pregnancy and uh, childbirth and setting up your bedroom, your boudoir for those sorts of things. Other practical advice. Um, Yeah, and that was pretty uh, groundbreaking back then, that there was an entire volume dedicated to women's health written, directed towards women. It was not a scientific one doctor to another, here is how to work with female patients. It is, I am a woman doctor writing this to women so that they can help themselves. uh, Advice point number 83 in that book is, One of the modern blessings to women in labor is chloroform. It is administered only during the second stage of labor. (laughs) Drugs. Yeah. So, um, I mean. And then her second book uh, was published in 1903 called My Child and I. It's more advice for children um, and their medical needs. And then she took a little publishing break. And in 1910, we have. The classic. The one man, which is um, misleading because there are several men in this book. So I actually did some digging and I borrowed my copy from the University of Minnesota Library. And 
It is available for free. Everyone listening, it is available on Google because the U of M, some poor probably student worker in the past doing a work study job had to scan in this entire novel digitally. Um, but it's for the benefit of the world because anyone can read this for free online. I don't know if I would encourage it. You can make your own value judgment at the end of this podcast if you want to seek it out. But um, physical copy wise, it is one of only five copies that's publicly available to be borrowed in the world um, through WorldCat, which is sort of an interlibrary loan search device that people can use. Let's dive in, but let's give the readers a taste. Yeah, let's let's listen to the first chapter of this book and how we're setting up the adventure for our main characters. Here we go. We're going to come back after the first chapter and dive into what we think about this book and spoil the plot. We had so much fun, we weren't able to include our full discussion in this edit for the podcast. Find the unedited conversation on the vault at anokacountyhistory.org. If at any point you want to skip ahead, Daryl and I come back in around the 20 minute mark. Just know if you do, Flora will know. The One Man by Dr. Mrs. F.L.S. Aldrich. Chapter One. I do not approve of it. You will never be happy as the wife of Judson Patmore. Love is not possible between a man of 70 and a young woman of 20. In such an alliance, your life will be a disappointment, your ideals blighted, and all that is best in a man of his years will be unappreciated by you. And Margaret, love will come to you, and when it does, Judson Patmore will stand in its way. And there is more, the man himself. I know he has gold, unlimited wealth, I am told, but he is twice divorced, and you cannot escape the squelle of this unfortunate condition— for the sorrows of humanity weigh so heavily sometimes that gold even is powerless to outbalance them. Thus, frankly and emphatically exclaimed a beautiful, dark-eyed young woman to another, a fair-haired blonde, her opposite in every appearance. They were seated upon a long sofa, which had been drawn close to a north window in one of the stately old mansions, so much admired by travelers who pass up and down the river between New York and Albany, it was a beautiful place, and upon this October day, it seemed most gloriously so from the abundance of autumn foliage, which at this season of the year makes no more charming place in the whole world than the old valley of the Hudson. And the silence, it too was marked, for although hours from even time, the stillness was singularly impressive. So quiet was it that one could hear the leaves falling one by one upon the lawn which stretched out from the mansion to the park gates leading into the highway. But I shall marry Judson Patmore. I respect him, and I may learn to love him. You know this is the way sometimes. I'm sure he is kind, and Frederica, I shall have a place. I mean a place in society. Frederica interrupted her. Margaret, you admit now that you do not love him, and it is wrong, all wrong for you to sacrifice yourself to him for a place in society. The words angered Margaret, and a somewhat excited discussion followed, which ended when she declared, And you, Frederica von Hoffman, shall never know why I do this. It's a secret lying deep within my own heart. Women of your class do not understand. Frederica felt the bitterness of the words, Women of your class. 
and asked for an explanation. Margaret bit her coral lips. An explanation? She wondered if she could give one without telling her all. She would tell her a little, just enough to enable her to understand something of the temptation and the sacrifice, just enough to bring her into a closer sympathy with the ambitions of the poor. And her voice softened when she found the words, Frederica, an explanation, even in part, will hurt you, as it will hurt me to give it. We have said much already, but if you insist, it shall be given. Again, Frederica demanded the explanation, and she urged her to be frank, assuring her that it was the best for her to know the truth. Margaret's eyes fell, and bursting into tears, she threw herself at Frederica's feet. Oh, no, she could not tell her her kind and beautiful benefactress. But Frederica insisted, and between sobs she heard these words, If you had only left me in my own class, with my own people, Frederica, if you had left me there to have worked it out my life, I mean the life, the, the social life to which I was born. Frederica did not speak, and for some moments the girl wept on. At last she looked up into Frederica's face, and again the tears fell bitterly. I knew you would not understand. I knew it would be this way, Frederica. Still, Frederica made no reply. Margaret now grasped her hands. She would speak, and she would not weep, for had not Frederica said a cruel thing to her? Yes, she cried, and it was my undoing. It has made you even say to me that when I found love, it would not be for the man who is to be my husband. She saw that Frederica felt the rebuke, and she did not wait for her to speak. But let us forget it, she said. I have already said too much. I knew you would not understand. Uh, no, no, no one but the poor can understand. Frederica looked into her face pityingly and unloosed Margaret's hands. Both rose to their feet, and Margaret turned towards the door, expecting to be forever banished from the home which had been hers for many years. Upon the threshold, she paused as if to say goodbye, but at that instant Frederica was at her side. Oh, Margaret, she cried, do not go. Stay and tell me everything, for if in this heart of mine or in the hearts of those about me there is anything which has given you one moment of unhappiness, I must know it. Say what you will, Margaret, and I will love you better for your frankness. The blue eyes were overflowing. She had looked for retort, reproof, but now followed Frederica to the sofa near the window, and with her golden head resting upon the shoulder of the noble girl beside her, she reviewed the pages of her short and restless life. It was one familiar to all, and but one of the thousands which are daily breaking the hearts of men and women. She spoke softly, earnestly, as she pictured the real differences from the social viewpoint between the rich and poor, between the family in the mansion where she was now a guest, and her own in the old fisherman's cottage less than a mile away. She talked of her childhood, innocently happy, when, with other children, she had gathered pebbles on the beach and laughed the livelong day. She pictured her father, also, grim fisherman though he was, as a very king among men. She told of that day when, for the first time, she heard her stepmother repining over the bitterness of poverty and in a relentless ambition declare that Margaret should not suffer as she had done, that any life was better than one of such deprivation as she had known. She reviewed the incidents of a bright June morning 
the day upon which Frederica had reined her horse close to the fence and asked her for the strawberries she had picked in the old meadow, white with daisies. She recalled the many succeeding days when, as neighbors, they had exchanged the casual salutations which afterward had grown into a deeper friendship. And then of a well-remembered day when she, Frederica, had come to the humble cottage and asked the father and mother to permit her to become her protege, that she might educate her to be her as a sister. She lingered over the memories of the years which followed of their college life and all their joys in common. Frederica listened thoughtfully. Margaret paused a moment, as if dreaming herself of those happy days. Then she began speaking again, of the travel in foreign lands, of the delightful equality of both in old-world society. And then she lingered over the homecoming and the pleasurable anticipation in meeting her father and mother. She recalled how proud they seemed of her, and it was all so delightful, until a certain day upon which she had heard her father say, it was a mistake, a mistake. God grant that it not be her undoing. Her tears were falling fast, and only between sobs which convulsed her delicate frame was she able to continue her confession. And Frederica, it was a mistake. Do not reprove me. Do not think me ungrateful. It was all so delightful then, and you meant well, but you did not know what the results would be, what it would some day mean to me. She had grasped Frederica's hand as if to assure herself that she could go on. Oh, how hard it is for me to tell you of this terrible unrest, of the intellectual gulf which separates me from my father and mother, of the discontent even with my own home, my father's house, which by every human tie should be sacred to me, of the longing to be something, someone whom I am not, of the inner desire to now reach a social plane to which I was not born, of yearnings for an existence so far beyond my birthright and my surroundings as to bring me in rebellion with my own ideals, causing me to suppress them, to kill them, even my ideals of love, because of the impossibility of their realization. Frederica drew her hand away. She leaned back against the sofa in her agitation. I, I knew you would despise me if I told you, she said it pityingly and reached forward to grasp her arm. But even if you do... You will better understand why I cannot take your advice when you ask me not to marry Judson Patmore. She dropped her voice. Yes, Frederica, I know how terrible it seems to you, how horrifying it is to you, and yet you cannot fail to see how differently, as his wife, my social position will be than it is now, the daughter of an old fisherman. She repeated the words half-sneeringly, the daughter of an old fisherman, a young woman whom none of your class would condescend to marry. A note that would be a disgrace. It would mean social and family ostracism for the one, and nothing but a life of regret and unhappiness for the other. She took her hand from Frederica's arm and leaned away from her. What then is left for me? She said after a moment. She answered the question herself. Only two ways, and today I am at the parting thereof. I am choosing the least sinful. I shall marry Judson Patmore. Frederica gazed at her with varied feeling. She had not once spoken. Margaret's face fell. Her voice faltered. A look of intense shame and bitterness spread across her face. Frederica leaned toward her. Margaret, I... Oh, do not speak. Do not chastise me. Also, doubt me not, for I shall be true, Frederica. My religion teaches me fidelity in marriage. It teaches me faith, even in the darkest night. It teaches me patience and hope. 
Frederica grasped her hands. She knew that Margaret was suffering. Oh, that she would change her mind. She was sure she could adjust the social matters. Sure that she could arrange a better marriage. Your church, Margaret. You cannot marry this man. Yes, I know what you mean, Frederica. I know that the church does not sanction a marriage such as mine. Marriage with a divorced man. She spoke rapidly. Her heart was beating heavily against her breast, and she rose as she finished the sentence. But God still lives, and his mercy will extend even unto me. Without another word, she stooped and kissed Frederica, and then hurriedly glided from the room down the long hall, and out through the massive door which bore upon its plate the ancient placard, Open not, for neither close thyself upon dishonor. Chapter 2 when Margaret reached the crest of the hill on her way home, she sat down upon a shelved rock beneath a cluster of maples and looked back at the beautiful home in the distance. She almost regretted her rude departure and wondered if she had made a mistake. After another moment of indignation, which had suffused her cheeks and half-dazed her brain, subsided, she looked around and picked up some of the most beautifully tinted and perfect leaves. She broke off their stems and began pinning them together— she had often done in her childhood. When she had completed a long garland, she laid it down upon the rock beside her, and quite unconscious of her position near the public highway, said aloud, I wonder if Frederic will ever be the same to me again. I wonder if it will ever seem the same to, to me in that beautiful home I love so well. For a moment she rested her head upon her hand. Ah, she said, it might have been different. Yes, it might have been my home, too, my happy home, if he had dared to speak. No, not that. If if he had dared to face the world, I wonder why he never told me. Ah, he could not. He is too honorable, too honorable to declare his love without bringing with it an offer of marriage. I must never more wonder at this. Such trifling is not for men like Herbert von Hoffmann. He would die first. She fell to thinking again, and her cheeks, which had been so purple, became as pale as death. For a few moments she lapsed into the silence of her own thoughts. Then in faintly audible tones she said, Yes, I comprehend it all. I realize the social viewpoint well, but it is cruel, yes, terribly so, to know the hearts like mine, like his, must break, or seal themselves forever, or else. That other way, the hidden love, which makes home such hells, she sighed, and then in a voice which told of intense bitterness, she cried aloud, O wretched social state, wilt thou forever make gold the barrier between the hearts of men and women? Gold the merciless God which enslaves the world. She rose from her seat and looked again towards the von Hoffmann mansion. She sighed and said, Sweet Frederica, she advises me against this marriage. She is noble and good, but like all others who belong in her class, she looks through the social glass darkly. Even she would have frowned upon my marriage with her brother. She who calls me sister would not have welcomed me as the real sister of her brother's wife. Again she sat down upon the rock. It was a quiet place. I wonder, I wonder why I think of this tonight, when within an hour I shall become the promised bride of another man. Why may I not forget him? Why does my heart pain me so? She pressed her hand against her breast for a moment, drew one stifled breath, and then in a half-audible tone, a voice modulated with resignation, she said, But it is of no use. 
go I surely must, another victim of the social guillotine. My independence, my ideals, yes, even the highest emotions of my soul sacrificed, sacrificed forever. I told Frederica that I believed that I could learn to love this man. Perhaps I shall. I will try. Yes, I must try to love him. She bent her head into her hands for a moment. There was a whispered prayer, the closing words of which were wafted onto the gates of heaven. God, in thy mercy, help me. O most holy mother, intercede for me. Suddenly, as if from a dream, she looked up. She was face to face with Herbert von Hoffman. Dreaming, Margaret? He gaily asked as he reined his horse up to the rock upon which she was sitting. All right, we went a bit past chapter one because, I mean, what a treat chapter one was. We just had to keep going. I just, I needed to introduce Herbert von Hoffman. Uh, What, I mean, I, I do have some notes on Flora's style of naming things. Um, often later on in the book, you will see that there are unnamed people or places. It will be a location name could be Fort and then just some dashes or Judge and Dash, a long dash. It's not even an M dash. It is like triple M dash. It's interesting because I don't know if she just turned in an unfinished draft to her publisher where she didn't come up with some proper names for things. But when she does choose a proper name and chooses Von Hoffman, what? Okay, okay. Give our readers the cliff notes. We ended when Herbert Von Hoffman shows up. What... What is a synopsis of what happens in this book? Oh, um, I'll take it by character because it's real complicated. Um, Let's deal with Frederica. She's the simplest one. Um, she, She is eventually going to marry a local doctor who is from Minnesota, but is on the East Coast. And... Frederica is rich in her own right. She and her brother Herbert um, were left as orphans because their very rich parents died and they have multiple houses and she is courted by a duke and she's like, no, I can't. And then marries a rich doctor. And that's how her story ends in this novel. Herbert becomes a doctor. He marries a woman, has a child. His wife eventually dies, and then Margaret herself marries old dude. Old dude, and she lived together for years. It's like nine years that they're married. He dies. She finds out that he was actually married to two other women at the same time. So we got some bigamy going on. Where he so he's not just divorced twice that we learn in the first chapter, but he he was bigamous. Yeah, he was never divorced. We come to find he just abandoned successive families. Um, And she, because he wronged, the way he got his fortune, because we know that he's rich, um, the way he got his fortune is that he scammed on his first wife and went and showed fake documents saying she was dead to inherit the land that she would have gotten and sold off all the land and got his millions. 
So Margaret, on her great moral crusade of the book, eventually gets to the point where she returns all this money to the first wife. Those are three main characters. Um, Other ones are woven in and out. There's some very poor writing, um, but there are themes I want to discuss. Consider this your English class for today. (laughs) So first, we have a strong theme on divorce in this book. And not just divorce as a topic, divorce being the worst thing in the world, period. I know that Flora Aldrich is super against divorce based on how she is writing this book, where there are several chapters, almost whole chapters devoted to characters going on and on about how evil divorce is, how the government should legislate to make it harder to get a divorce, how morally repugnant it is. Another big thing is um, a theme is Christianity and specifically Catholicism, which ties very directly into the divorce conversation to the point where later in the book, before we get to the ending, there is an encounter between Herbert and Margaret. And um, he is saying, I will leave my wife and child. No one's happy. It would be for the best, actually, for her and for me if we were just not together anymore. And Margaret gets a crucifix, holds it in front of her and screams, promise me, I implore you, promise me that he would not get divorced so that they could get married. It is a bonker scene. <laughs> is screaming at him, begging him, like she is trying to exercise a demon. Be it, gone, Herbert. Yeah, and... Um, do not tempt me. There are also moral arguments. Like, there are moral tirades in this book. Um, one of them on page 80 is about alcohol and how evil it is and how you shouldn't drink. Um, there's a tornado in our quasi-Anoka setting, and they find this girl with a broken leg and some wreckage, and they take her off to St. Paul. They do not even attempt to find her parents. They're just like, we'll take care of this kid. (laughs) Um, So there's very much that paternal caretaker moral in here as well that, oh, we'll take care of her best. We're not going to try to find her family. They find her mom later on. And guess what? She's the second wife. Um, Yes. And this is the child. And who shows up to help this child and be a benefactress? Margaret because she's the white savior. Um, And we dive further where she is the white savior because the first wife that she helps out and gives the money back to is actually Native American. Did not see that one coming. Oh, uh, the Native descriptions in here, I, I have issue with. A conversation between this girl's mother, so the second wife, and then Margaret, who's the third wife, they come around to, oh, I, as the second wife, I know the first wife. And she said, her name is Minaluska. She is a squaw with an exclamation point. Uh, You can't see it, but I'm, I'm holding my head. And in response, Margaret actually, it says, Margaret screams, an Indian? A squaw? 
it's so bad. Um, so, so, so bad. Margaret takes a journey with, you know, the second wife and the child of her deceased husband, as one does, up to a reservation. And she wants to find Minalaska and make things right. So there are very problematic descriptions of Native Americans here and Margaret's relationship with them uh, and how she eventually made things right. Um, and it was because Minalaska, who was still alive, her first husband had faked the documents to say she was dead so she could steal so he could steal all of her native land and sell it off. So at the end of the book, what she does is gives all the proceeds back to Minalaska, but all that land has been sold. So is she truly making it right? If we're thinking about it from our perspectives right now, does that actually make it right? We're talking basically about reparations for a wrong done to a Native American and to that culture. It's an interesting lens to look at it through. And her lawyers actually tried to talk her out of giving the money back and said, why don't you just, if you don't want the money, if you see that it's ill-gotten, give it to charity, do something else with it. And she's like, no, that is not how I right the wrong that my husband did to this woman. So like you say, it is in this context, probably the best she can do. I don't think that Flora should have touched this with a 10 foot stick as a privileged rich white lady. My favorite part of the book is the final chapter. <laughs> well, one, because the book is ending. It, yes. Absolutely. And two, because it's ridiculous. I love it. Yeah. Um, she sews up her storylines very quickly. Um, Let, let's get into it. Yeah. Pretty short chapter. You are waiting for it. The end of The One Man. Chapter 27. For five days, the case progressed favorably, and then a message was dispatched to the doctor. It said, pulse failing, 130. Temperature higher, facial lividity, increasing delirium, she is Catholic. He sent back the reply, I will come at once, send for a priest. The doctor was soon at the bedside of his patient, and his experienced eye recognized at once the critically alarming symptoms. During a conscious interval, he said to her, Madame, you are a Catholic. I have taken the liberty to send for a priest. You are passing through the most critical period of your illness. No doubt you will be better tomorrow. She opened her eyes. She understood. Ah, doctor, I know you will save me. I have great confidence. And then I must live for him. She made an almost superhuman effort to rise. It took both nurse and physician to restrain her. A moment later, she was passive and was looking calmly into the doctor's eyes. Again, he spoke. We are doing everything that skillful hands in modern medicine can do. She looked at him thoughtfully and appreciatingly. But, he further continued, we do not hold the book of life in our hands. You have a fine constitution and nature is a great restorer. We are aiding her. She was still looking at him intently. She was smiling. Nature, nature, you must know her. That is what she always says. And again, as on his first visit, she exclaimed, Ah, yes, you both mean God. She raised herself up again. The nurse restrained her. Ah, yes, she cried. 
You both mean God. She sank upon the pillows in exhaustion and whispered the name of the man she loved. She begged the doctor to save her for his sake. Then she lapsed into a period of silence, and they wondered if she would speak again. But in a moment she was again crying, Ah, he's here! Bring him quickly! Hurry! Hurry, doctor! Again the physician sought to calm her. Yes, he was here, doctor! And then she smiled and repeated the words as if in confidence. Yes, replied the man of science, whoever reads hearts well, he was here. Will he come again? She spoke in a whisper, inquiringly. Yes, soon. He would withhold no happiness, for he feared death was near. A maid tapped on the door, who announced the arrival of the priest. Her condition is serious, father, said the doctor as the priest entered the chamber. Then turned to the maid, he said, send a message to Hotel Blank for Dr. Blank. He came last night from Europe. The priest hastened to the bedside of the woman. There was no confession, for she could not speak, but he said the prayers and administered the sacraments of the dying. After it was over, the two physicians came into the room. The woman had half roused again, and there was the appearance of returning consciousness, but the doctor saw a marked change in her appearance since he left her. The purple tints upon her face had given place to a marbled pallor. She was quiet, the pain, the agony of difficult breathing was at an end. Was it death? Both physicians were looking seriously down into her face. Yes, it was death. Suddenly the consulting physician started. What is this woman's name? I believe she is someone I have known. The nurse handed him a letter, and from a nearby table he glanced through the pages excitedly, and at the close read his sister's name. It was enough. For a moment he could not speak. The perspiration gathered in great drops upon his brow. This is from my sister. This woman is her friend, Mrs. Patmore. He turned again to the bedside, and folding his arms across his breast, looked down into her face. Upon his face there was no evidence of emotion. He observed that she was still breathing, although the nurse had a moment before declared that the pulse was still. Yes, it was Margaret. There was no mistake. There was the same golden hair and the same sweet smile. The Margaret he had loved. The Margaret who had sacrificed her love, her life for him and for God. Precious Margaret. And she was not dead. What if she should live? What if she recognized him? Upon her breast there slowly rose and fell the same crucifix, with its glistening precious stones. His heart stood still, and he wondered if he really lived. A moment later she opened her eyes. They rested for a time upon his face, and suddenly they stared anxiously into his eyes. A moment later the crucifix was still. The lids had fallen, and a smile was chiseled upon her icy lips. It is over, said the nurse in a solemn voice. He had fallen upon his knees, and unloosening the tiny chain which held the little cross, he clasped his hands over it and bent his head upon both. He too must be a Catholic, and praying for her soul. But they knew not that in that terrible moment the prayers which rose from his lips in the great silence of the darkened chamber were not for her, but rather the supplication of a despairing man whose heart was dead. There was a long silence, and then came a stifled moan, the echo of subdued love, a love which is sometimes forced to die in the hearts of men. He rose at last, and the older physician was still leaning against the corridor wall. He had read the heart of the man before him. Dr. Houston walked with him down the long hall. They were old friends, and he made inquiry about his wife and child. He answered as best he could and left with the hotel, 
conscious only of the hand grasp of a brother man. When he reached the street, the sky was clear and cold, and the gray dawn proclaimed the opening of another day. He had drunk in the last cup. It was one of a costly death. Margaret Patmore lived. What appeared to be death was only severe collapse, and now for two years she had lived on the South Atlantic coast through the long, tedious convalescence. It was an April afternoon, and she felt for the first time that she was well, and at once awakened to a new interest in life. She was no longer rich, and her immediate decision was to return to New York and secure employment. She sat for some moments and leaned over the balcony of her hotel, as if listening for the last time to the music which came up from the garden below. At last, she rose and walked almost reluctantly towards the low French window leading into her apartments. Margaret! For months, she had not heard her name spoken. She turned suddenly and grasped the casement. She half reeled against the panes, for it was the voice of her dreams. She looked at the man beside her. This could not be he, this one with the snow-white hair and furrowed brow. She looked again. There was none else near. And in her agitation, she extended her hand and exclaimed, Herbert, Dr. von Hoffman. Again, his hand was clasping hers. It was upon his lips to say, at last, Margaret, my Margaret. But instead, his face grew pale and calm, and upon his clear-cut features, there was only the expression of a mature passion, the dignity of well-mastered emotion. She raised her eyes to his and tried to speak, but the words would not come. He understood her confusion and said at once, It is but an incident that I am here. I leave for Havana tomorrow. He followed her into the long, low parlor, and they talked on and on of Frederica, of his wife's illness and death, and still there was no word that he yet loved her. Again he seemed to her a man of the world, proud, rich, and she with only the prospect of a working woman before her. Her eyes sought the floor, and her face paled under the thought that now there must be another. And that would be the last cup of bitterness. She wondered if she could sacrifice her love any longer, wondered if she could give him up to another woman. Yes, if it would bring him happiness, and he would never know that it gave her pain. The thought buoyed her up, and for a moment she looked up into his face again. The silence was oppressive. Suddenly, the magnolia leaves moved softly, and she breathed in a new life. Her face flushed. She was as beautiful as upon that night so long ago when the light went out of both of their lives. Their eyes met, and she knew that she could not give him up and live. A moment later, a strange pallor crept over her face, and she fell senseless at his feet. He thought that his silence had killed her, and with a half-crazed impulse, he raised her to his heart. He called her Margaret, his Margaret, and the words were electric, for she opened her eyes and looked long and deeply into his, and then, like a tired child, she nestled her golden head close to his face, and their lips met in the intoxication of love long years suppressed. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hello, listeners. This is Diana Nuremberg, Adult Services Librarian at the Northtown Library. And I'm here to share with you some great books and resources available through the library, which are related to this episode on Flora Aldrich. If you want to learn more about the evolution of medicine from the late 1800s to today, 
or the struggle women face to be taken seriously in the field of medicine, we have something for you. Or maybe like Flora, you are interested in writing a novel for the first time and need some guidance. The library has resources for that too. Let's get started. If you can't get enough of late 1800s medical fiction with a hint of romance, this might be a great series for you. The Stars for a Light by Lynn and Gilbert Morris, book one of Cheney Duval MD series. In this first of the eight book series, readers are introduced to protagonist Cheney Duval, recent graduate from a prestigious medical school struggling to find work as a female physician in a post-Civil War era and male-dominated field. Fans of other historical Christian fiction writers like Kim Bogle Sawyer, Tracy Peterson, or Tamara Alexander might also enjoy these books. Next, we have Letter to a Young Female Physician, Notes from a Medical Life by Suzanne Coben. In this medical memoir published just this year, Dr. Suzanne Coben recounts the ups and downs she's faced not only as a female physician, but as a female physician at the intersection of also being a mother, a wife, daughter, and just person. The book stems from an essay she published in 2017 in which she diagnosed herself with imposter syndrome, the term often given to those who feel a lack of belonging or confidence despite evidence to the contrary. While Coven talks about many aspects of being a female physician, gender inequality in the field is a thread woven throughout. Next, we have the medical book, from Witch Doctors to Robot Surgeons, 250 Milestones in the History of Medicine by Clifford Pickover. Told in a two-page spread pictorial timeline, this book chronologically advances the reader through the various medical advances made throughout history, literally from witch doctors at about 10,000 BC to human cloning in 2008. Key players in the discoveries are named at the top of the page, leading into a short summary of the topic. This is a great resource for someone curious about the various milestones, but not looking for a long narrative style book. Now to some resources on writing books. We have one really great online resource um, available through the library's website called Min Writes, Min Reads. It's an electronic resources for both writers and readers. There are three modules, create, share, and read. If you are an, an aspiring author, you can either upload your existing work or create it from scratch in the Create module. Using software called Pressbooks, you can format your content for e-publication. Then, once your ebook is ready, you can share it in the Share module, which uploads it via Indie Author Project, making it available in a statewide online collection. It will be reviewed and then included in the Read module. There's even a chance your shared ebook could be included in a nationally available database. Library journal reviewers select several submissions to be included in this national collection. Thank you for listening to the Library Minute. If this list is inspiring you to learn more, follow your dreams, exceed expectations, or just pick up a good book, library staff are here for you and willing to help. You can check out more resources on the podcast list, reach out to us um, at the library, or come visit. Until next time, happy learning. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. The fact that she dies, it comes back to life. Margaret Patmore lived. It was only severe collapse. Gets me every time. Yes. Um, And it's interesting. Flora does draw upon her medical knowledge 
in the writing of this chapter. Um, she's describing temperatures and pulse and everything. But the uh, doctors aren't very good. They don't realize that she's still alive, that she's not dead. <laughs> and along with the description of the, the symptoms, what is the last sentence there? She is a Catholic. So um, again, going back to that theme. For someone who I've talked about a lot on ghost tours, because we go past her house and just having sort of a relationship with this human that I've never met who died a hundred years ago. It's been interesting to get to know her a little bit more through this novel. Yeah. How does it change your perception of her, if at all? I have always seen her as a very like super logical human where she didn't take much guff from anybody. And I can see her in this novel trying to get away from that, but I still see it as super linear, black and white. There are There isn't too much gray in Flora's world. So I didn't realize how much she was connected to uh, being interested in religious things. So that's one thing that I learned about her through this book about how connected she is with that. It isn't science or religion. It's they're both together in her mind. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. Um, because I went into this with sort of the same baseline knowledge and the way that she wrote her main character is just really, it's a juxtaposition with what my preconceived notions of her were. So um, I have a question for you, though, about yeah. work at the Historical Society. So uh, we have some of Flora's stuff that goes on display once in a while. We have some very sparse things. We have, of course, all of the books that she published. We don't have any personal papers. We do have some prescriptions that she wrote out as a doctor, which are interesting. You can see doctor handwriting is still doctor <laughs> handwriting in the early 1900s. I'll have a couple of photos of those on the show notes page that you can look at. Lots of their books. That yeah, they we have, yeah, we have part of their personal library. Yeah, their medical texts that they had together. I admit I could not make my way completely through this book. So props to you and a challenge to any reader out there that would, would like yeah. to. Dear reader, please um, go ahead, read this entire book, find the social media post promoting this episode and let us know your least favorite <laughs> part. If you want to learn more about Flora, you can read The One Man online. Her other books, unfortunately, are not digitized out in the world. I searched really hard. So you'd have to come to the Historical Society to look at those. Uh, we have a couple of things that I'll link to the show notes page. We do have a little history booklet all about Colonial Hall and the Doctors Aldrich that we sell in our gift shop. Yes. And, and uh, speaking on behalf of the other board members, and I feel emboldened to do this, we are always happy to chat with people who are interested about history. Yes. I hope you all enjoyed The One Man. Thank you, Daryl, for taking it on and reading almost the whole thing. Yes, yes. It was um, an experience, if not necessarily a pleasure to read <laughs> it. It was such a pleasure chatting with you today about it. Thank you, Daryl. We'll see you next time. If you have a question, 
Want to visit our show notes page for each episode or would like to share your own story? Go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, the Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.